This is a very common human temptation to think that all God cares about is what happens on the outside. But this isn't who God is. He tells us again and again that he looks inside the heart. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and from all of us at The Word Unleashed, Happy Thanksgiving. Today, Tom has part one for us of a two-part series titled Cultivating a Thankful Heart. This time of year, we're far more apt to think about thankfulness and gratitude, to reflect on and remember all the many blessings that we experience each day. But what about the rest of the year? What is the posture of your heart in times of trouble or stress? Do you rely on and indeed give thanks for the very blessings that you receive that cause happiness? Well, as Tom takes us through Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15, you'll be reminded that thankfulness is an attitude of the heart that doesn't happen accidentally. Rather, it's the result of prayer and praise. Keep that in mind as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. To help us prepare for this week's celebration of Thanksgiving, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Now let me first back up and give you some context of Psalm 50. You'll notice that it begins with the title, A Psalm of Asaph. This is the first of 12 psalms that were written by this man. Uh, The others would be Psalm 73 through 83. Asaph was one of the three choir leaders of Israel during the time of David. He led Israel's corporate worship. In fact, it's appropriate that in 1 Chronicles 16, 4, we're told this was his job description, to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. And so it's appropriate that here there's a focus in this psalm on thanksgiving. The psalm then was written almost certainly by Asaph. If not, it was written by one of his descendants who continued the same task in Israel. Now, this powerful psalm describes a court scene in which God summons the entire world to hear his case against his covenant people, Israel a case in which he is both the plaintiff and the judge. He first presents his case against the righteous ones among his people. He has a problem, a concern with them. And then he presents his case against the wicked among his people. That is, those who are not true believers at all, but who are a part of the nation. Let me give you a a sort of outline, a structure of the psalm. We're not going to cover the entire psalm, but just so you understand where it goes... In the first stanza, verses 1 through 6, God summons heaven and earth as his witnesses in a court case against his people. Then, in verses 7 through 15, the second stanza, God confronts the righteous among his people. The third stanza is verses 16 to 21, God confronts the wicked among his people. And that becomes clear, by the way, when you get to verse 16, it says, but to the wicked, God says, and then he says, what right have you to tell of my statutes, to take my covenant in your mouth? So these are people connected to the nation of Israel. And yet, verse 17, they hate discipline. 
that is verbal instruction. They even cast God's words behind them. They ignore what God has said, and they go on, verses 18 to 20, to sin against God and against His law. And they thought God… This is one of the greatest indictments of all time. Verse 21, you thought I was just like you because you did what you did and I kept silent. You thought I must, I must be okay with it. God says I'm not. And then the, the final stanza in verses 22 to 23, God declares his verdict on both the righteous and the wicked. So that's sort of the flow of the psalm as a whole. But for the next few minutes, as we prepare our hearts, both for thanksgiving and for the Lord's table, I want us just to consider that center stanza, verses 7 to 15, because here God confronts and corrects His true people. Let's read it together. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your foals, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine." If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Now, in that paragraph, God presents two corrections for his true people. He confronts them and he corrects them, and specifically there are two corrections here that we will look at together. First of all, God diagnoses the the sinful thinking among his people that destroys their thanksgiving, and then he prescribes the simple changes that will restore to his true people a grateful and dependent heart. So it's, as you can see, very appropriate for this Sunday. So let's consider then God's corrections. The first one is a correction of our thinking. Let's look in verses 7 to 13 at the sinful thinking that destroys gratitude. The sinful thinking that destroys gratitude. When thanksgiving is either infrequent or, frankly, non-existent, God says, I want you to consider my diagnosis of the real problem. If we struggle with a thankful heart, God here for us is helping to diagnose one of the most common sets of problems. It has to do with our thinking. The real problem, God says, with your lack of thanksgiving is this. It's how you think about me. That's the real problem. So what are the sinful thoughts about God that lie buried here in God's diagnosis of the thoughts of his people? Let's look at them together. There are several patterns of sinful thinking that destroy, ultimately, a thankful heart. The first sinful thought about God that that acts in that way is this, God is pleased with my worship and obedience, 
even if it's solely external. This is verses 7 and 8. Now, the previous verses, verses 1 through 6, are really just introduction. They, they set the scene as God calls heaven and earth as his witnesses as he launches his case against his people. But now, in verse 7, God speaks, and notice what he says. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now, when you read that verse, if you're thinking at all, it should send a little shiver up your spine because it reminds us that God then and God now is inspecting the, the lives and the worship of his people. God was scrutinizing the worship of his people Israel in the time of Asaph, and he does ours as well. In fact, think of it this way, we can give thanks to God this week, or think we are, and it can be woefully inadequate, just as the worship of God's people in the time of Asaph was, and God here confronts it. So what is God's problem with their worship? Verse 8, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. In verse 8, he's not yet telling us why he's concerned about his people. He's telling us why he's not. This is not the problem. God's indictment of his people was not for their failure to worship him externally in the way he had prescribed. In fact, verse 8 says, they do so consistently. In fact, they did so every morning and evening with the burnt offering that was required every day of the year. They did so on every weekly Sabbath. They did so at the monthly new moon festivals. They did it at the annual feast. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Externally, they were engaged in the worship of God. God's problem was not with their external worship. God's problem was with their attitude, with their thinking, especially toward him. And at the core of their sinful thinking was that God was only concerned with the externals. And let me just say, this is a very common human temptation, to think that all God cares about is what happens on the outside. But this isn't who God is. He tells us again and again that he looks inside the heart. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, you remember he says to Samuel, listen, don't look at David's older brother and think he's the next king. You're just looking at the appearance. That's where man looks, but God says, I look on the heart. Or consider what David says to his son Solomon in First in Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. He says, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and listen to this, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. That's what God expects, a whole heart and a willing mind. For, because, here's why, Solomon, you ought to do this, the Lord searches all hearts. There's a sermon right there. The Lord searches all hearts. That's your heart, and that's my heart. Let this sink into your mind for a moment. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what's going on inside your head. And David goes on to say, and he understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, 
he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. God looks at the human heart, at your heart and my heart, and he responds not on the basis of what's happening externally, but on the basis of what's happening inside. By the way, ultimately, this is why we all need the gospel of Jesus Christ, because God looks on the heart. That means we can never meet God's standard. We can never have the only righteousness which would make us acceptable to God, and that is perfect internal righteousness. You better let this sink into your mind. God isn't external in his evaluation. He knows every thought you have ever had. He searches all the hearts, and he will make his determination based on the reality that he finds there. Your only hope and my only hope is Jesus Christ, that he was punished on the cross in the place of everyone who would ever repent of their sins and believe in him. Short of that, we have no hope. He is our hope. But for us who are in Christ, this verse here in Psalm 50 reminds us that God is never pleased with solely external worship and obedience. He wants our worship and obedience only if they come from a whole heart and a willing mind. All of us who are in Christ would say amen to that. So let me just give you a little test as I have to test myself. How have you done so far with your worship this morning? Did you sing from your heart to the Lord when we sang? When we've prayed, have you engaged your mind in praying along with the person who's leading in prayer and addressed your prayers to God? Now, as we study God's Word, are you forcing your mind to listen to and to respond to God's Word If you have to say no to any of those questions, then understand this. You are as guilty this morning as the people God confronts in this psalm. If your body's here, but your mind is a thousand miles away, then this stanza is for you as it is for all of us. And here's the problem. When we think the external is all that matters, it always destroys a heart of gratitude. Why? Because gratitude by its very nature is something that begins inside. It begins in the heart. And when the heart doesn't matter to us because we don't think the heart matters to God, gratitude dies. There's a second pattern of sinful thinking that destroys gratitude here in this stanza. It's this, God demands from me what is really mine. God demands from me what is really mine, verses 9 and 10. Notice verse 9. God says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your foals. Now, bulls and male goats were usually the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament system. And together here, they probably are intended to represent all of the sacrifices that were offered to God. And God says, I don't want your sacrifices. Now, don't misunderstand. God is not saying in verse 9 that the people of Israel were no longer to offer those sacrifices that he himself required in the Old Testament law. Instead, he's making two points to the people. First of all, he's making the point that sacrifice offered externally without the right heart was not acceptable to God. It's not enough. In fact, turn over just a page to Psalm 51 one of the most famous psalms, David, as he confessed his sin with Bathsheba, he understood this. Verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. You want to know what sacrifice you can offer God? 
Start with a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that recognizes your sin and humbles yourself before God. That's what David says. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Listen, if you'll come to God humbly broken over your sin, God won't despise you. He'll receive you. He'll welcome you. But even as David acknowledges that you have to come with the right heart, and that matters more than sacrifice, he goes on to underscore that in that Old Testament system, they were still to offer sacrifices. Look at verse 19. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So he wasn't saying that there were to be no sacrifices. He was saying they have to come with the right heart, with a right heart. This was true, you remember, even back in Samuel. Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, he says, has the Lord as much delight in sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? No. No is the answer. And there are a number of passages in the Old Testament that, that underscore this. One famous one in our culture is Amos chapter 5. I want you to see this. Amos chapter 5. You could turn to uh, Isaiah 1, and there are other places, Micah 6, but look at Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God says to his people, I hate, well, that's strong language, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. All those festivals that I told you to have, I hate them. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. And then he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What does that mean? He's saying, listen, if, if your life is not a life that's characterized by obedience to me, then I don't want your sacrifices. That's what he's saying. Don't bring them. Such passages as Amos and Isaiah, these passages anticipated the doing away with the animal sacrificial system once the permanent sacrifice of Jesus Christ had been made. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. But, but these passages also primarily make the point that sacrifices that were offered without the heart engaged and without a life that matched in obedience, those sacrifices were unacceptable to God. But there's a second point that God is making back in Psalm 50, and I want you to see it. Look at the difference between verses 9 and 10. In these two verses, God intentionally contrasts the pronouns your with mine. Notice in verse 9, the psalmist talks about the young bulls in your house and the male goats in your foals. Now, what's God doing here? Well, you've got to understand a little bit about the culture in which the children of Israel lived. All the countries that surrounded them also made sacrifices, but they worshipped idols. And they had these awful ideas about why sacrifices were made. In pagan religion, the sacrifices served several purposes. First of all, they, they were a kind of payoff, a payoff of the gods' anger, because in pagan religions, the gods are capricious, they're temperamental. All it takes to, to tick them off is a bad hair day, and wow, you're suffering as a result of it. That's the gods of the pagan nations. And so you offered sacrifices to kind of, kind of pay them off. 
keep them from carrying out their temperamental, capricious anger on you. A second reason the pagans offer sacrifices was, was as a bribe of their God's favor. Again, in pagan religion, the gods were miserly, they were harsh, they were not generous, and so you, you kind of had to grease the slide a little bit. You had to sort of give God something in hopes that he would give you more. You were bribing him. A third reason that the pagans made sacrifices to their gods was actually as a provision of their gods' needs, because their gods were completely dependent on the generosity of the people. In fact, Moses mocks this in Deuteronomy 32, verses 37 and 38. He talks about, you know, having to feed the gods. In fact, this was so common in Mesopotamian religion in the ancient world that one of the great uh, archaeologists wrote a book called The Care and Feeding of the Gods. That's how people thought about their sacrifices. Now, understand with pagans, in each case, the, the idolater thought like this. He thought, I am being forced to pay off, to bribe, or to provide for my God out of what really belongs to me and not to my God. That's how he thought. Sadly, the people of Israel had begun to think like their pagan neighbors. And when they offered their sacrifices, they had begun to think, God is taking from me what is rightfully mine. And so to correct this sinful thinking, God underscores his universal ownership of all things. Look at verse 9. I shall take no young bull out of, notice this, your house, nor male goats out of your foals, for, because, here's why, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, notice what belongs to God here. Look at verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine. God says all of the wild animals that roam at large, all those that man has not claimed or tamed, they're mine. Verse 10 goes on to say, the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. The Hebrew here, by the way, is a, a little ambiguous. Literally, the Hebrew reads this way, the cattle on the mountains of a thousand of him. It may mean the cattle that roamed by the thousands on all the hills of Israel, or more likely, the way it's translated here in our Bibles, the cattle on a thousand hills. But either way, the point's the same. Do you get the point? God's saying, I own all of the domesticated animals on this planet. I hate to tell you this, but your cat, your dog is not yours. It's God's. That's what he's saying. Verse 11, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. Now, you put those two verses together and notice what belongs to God. Every wild animal, all domesticated animals, every bird and everything that moves in the field. And the psalmist could have added everything that swims in the seas as well. But don't miss the point. All of the wild animals and all of the domesticated ones as well. Now look back at verse 9. That means the bull out of your house and the male goat out of your foals isn't really yours at all. It's God's. That's why you have Psalm 24, 1, which says, the earth is the Lord's. You want to look anywhere on this planet, you want to look, 
it's God's. It belongs to him. There's nothing on this planet that isn't his. It goes on to say, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. None of the animals, none of the plants, nothing. The oxygen, it's his. And then he adds, this is Psalm 24, 1, the world and those who dwell in it. You belong to God as your creator. God says, the world and those who dwell in it. There isn't a single person on this planet who isn't God's in the creator sense. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Cultivating a Thankful Heart. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.